you have your Bibles tonight, if you are not a routine note taker, I would recommend, because there's a portion of this Bible study where there will be references, and these references I believe will be of great benefit to you for future use, and so I would give you a heads up to prepare yourself for that. Perhaps you use it on your device, perhaps you have a pen at hand with a notepad, whatever it may be. I believe that this will be beneficial concerning a core doctrine that we must continually defend as Christians. And as you're doing that, please meet me in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you're with us for the first time, we're going through the book of 1 Samuel as a Bible study. We've been going through the Old Testament. We're still going through the Old Testament. And we started last week in 1 Samuel chapter 17, and just like the other two chapters before this, it is a lengthy one that deserves many parts so that we can gather the most from it. So 1 Samuel 17, scroll your fingers down to verse 12. And let's pray one more time, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Bible study. Lord, we declare our weakness in your presence. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we do not rely on gifting. We don't even rely on information that we have gathered. We need the help of the Spirit. For He teaches us all things. And He is able to seal things into our hearts. And so we ask, Lord, that You would do a work in each of our lives. As we dive deep into these scriptures, we believe that they are life. And they will give us hope and power and strength. For tomorrow. We give you thanks in advance in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we began this chapter, and we were quickly introduced to a well-known figure. You don't even have to be a Christian to have heard this name before. Goliath. Goliath, a great enemy to the people of Israel, and a character that represents much. And for the sake of our study, we realize that this man with the various characteristics that were listed towards us were insights that we were able to glean from to help us understand to some degree the nature of our warfare in the new covenant as Christians. And what's amazing is as we have gathered that information, we continue in this chapter only to be reintroduced to another important character in this study, namely David. We've already met David. But for some reason, we are now being reintroduced to him in this chapter. And the author, the Holy Spirit, is doing this purposefully. He wants to structure it this way so that after you just realize who Goliath is, you will now realize who David is. And it's almost as though there is being like an introduction for a fight that's about to take place. And so you have one person with all the stats, his height, his weight, his arm length. And then you have the opponent with his height, his weight, his, his nationality, whatever it may be. And, and that's what's happening here. We've just met Goliath. Now we're going to meet David. And the same way we learn much through Goliath, we will not be disappointed of what we will learn through the life of this man and the information that we are given through this introduction. And so let's read in verse 12. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years, being Jesse. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. To be honest, that first glance isn't a very impressive resume. The first thing that we are told about David in this introduction, as he stands in contrast to Goliath, is we are told about his dad, Jesse. And Jesse, as you read, he doesn't seem to be a very impressive individual. He's not a standing man in society. Unlike Saul's father that we read earlier in this book, Saul's father was a rich man. And we are told of his genealogy to a certain extent because whenever the scripture does that, sometimes it does it to show that this is an important person who has a rich heritage. 
No such thing with Jesse. Very plain. The only thing that we're told about Jesse was that he was old. He was advanced in years. And all that to say that he was a humble man. He wasn't someone great. He was someone who owned a farm and had a big family and did his best through his humble ways to provide for his family. Why are we being told this? Because that's where David comes from. David is not an impressive person up to this point. We, we realize who David is in light of all that we know, but at this point, he wasn't someone that was glamorous. He was just a plain, young farmer's kid who did his best to help his old dad with whatever task he's been given. And that's all we're told. And then the next thing we're told about David is not really about David as much as it is about his brothers. The three older ones who have went to war. Now, how many brothers, well, how many sons did Jesse have in total? Correct. And the three oldest ones go with Saul to this battle that we already heard of last week. Why are we being told that? Well, again, it's not just to tell us how many brothers David had. It's to tell us that, according to this, David did not go to war. And some would say that's because David was not seen as a valiant man. He wasn't a man who was worthy to go to war, and I don't believe that's the case. You've heard it many times from this Bible study, but here's a reference for you. Numbers 1, verse 3, we are told that the census for those who were able to go to war had to be counted among those who were 20 years old and upward. So based on that truth, we could believe very well that David was under the age of 20. And that means that David did not have experience in war. David didn't even know how to probably wield a real weapon. He had no such resume. He was distant from that kind of understanding, unlike his three older brothers, which, funny enough, they were the ones that were rejected to be the king, though they had the experience to be a king. And yet David, we are being told, had no experience from this verse, and yet he's going to now come and defeat what no soldier could defeat. To tell us what? Why are we being told about his older brothers? David is the unlikely hero. He's the one that's going to step on the scene, and because of that, he's going to give more glory to God because God chooses the foolish things of this world. And we're told that, but there's something about this truth that when we look at it through the lens of the New Testament that helps us understand something about our Lord and Savior. We're told here that David was the youngest. David was the youngest. Now, this is where I want you to pay attention and write some references down because this, this will help you in many conversations. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 89. And this great psalm is dedicated to a great man. A great portion of it is dedicated to King David himself. In Psalm 89, verse 20, I want you to see why this is important, and I want you to first be convinced that this is about David. I have found David my servant with my holy oil. I have anointed him. And then it goes on to say all these things that God will do for him and who he is and what he will accomplish. And one of those things that God will accomplish, you have your Bibles, yeah? Look at verse 27. And I will make him the what? The firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. What did we just learn about David? He was the what? He was the youngest. But now my Bible tells me that God will make him the firstborn. Contradiction? No. Here is evidence in your Bible that the Bible has its own dictionary. Meaning, the Bible has its own definition of certain terms that we have to get familiar with, lest we take our understanding of certain words and interpret the Bible through that lens. The term firstborn can mean to be the first in sequence, to be the first conceived, or to be the first created thing, right? To be the firstborn. In my life, I am the firstborn among three others. Out of the four of us, I am the firstborn. Then there's Peter, then there's Pauline, then there's Benjamin. So to say that I am the firstborn would mean that I came out of my mother's womb first. That's plain, that's simple. But that doesn't make sense in light of what we just read. That David would be made the firstborn 
though he was the youngest among eight of them. What are we understanding from this? That the word firstborn must mean something else, and it does. Depending on the context, the word firstborn can actually mean not first to be created or first to be conceived or first in order, but to be preeminent, to hold prominence, to surpass in excellence, to be unique from all other things, to be the highest rank among all other ranks in a certain category. Does that make sense now that we read Psalm 89, 27? And I will make him the firstborn, now read the rest of it, the highest of the kings of the earth. So based on God's promotion of King David, he is going to elevate him to a place of preeminence in which from all the other kings and all the other nations, they will be subject to his superiority. He will be far more superior from all the other kings on the earth because God has chosen not to make him firstborn out of his siblings, but out of privilege and position, he will be known as the firstborn and he will, as the firstborn, receive a special inheritance. And that inheritance would be that all other kings would recognize him as the one who reigns supreme from all other kings. Why is that important in light of Jesus Christ? Think of a New Testament title that's been given to Jesus Christ. He is the firstborn of all creation. Let's turn to Colossians 1.15. And as you're turning there, I want you to realize that this idea of firstborn is not just given to David. You're going to turn to Colossians 1.15, but I want to read to you. I want to read to you Exodus 4.22. Israel is my firstborn son. Exodus 4.22. Write that reference down. Israel is my firstborn son. Question, was Israel the first people group that were created on the earth? Absolutely not. You should know that very well just from the Bible alone. So why would God say that Israel is my firstborn? The same reason why he said David would be my firstborn. That in God's sight from all the nations, Israel would be first place in God's mind and in his planning. Israel would have prominence and Israel would be preeminent. And we see that throughout the Old Testament. God makes a covenant with Israel but with his terminology, with the Bible terminology, he says, Israel is my firstborn, though Israel is not the first people group on the earth. So are, are we all on the same page here? Because I've been told I speak fast. And so this is Bible study, and I don't have to honor some homiletic structure of a sermon. I can stop and be natural. Are we all on the same page? Is anybody not on the page yet? Everybody's on the same page. Because my duty here is to teach and to break down the word of God, not to impress you. So we see, David is recognized as the firstborn among kings. Israel was recognized as the firstborn among all the nations. And now we come to the New Testament in Colossians 1.15. And we read that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And who's salivating at the mouth? Your friendly neighborhood Jehovah's Witness. <laughs> because they come to this scripture, and you've probably heard it. They do not believe that your Lord and Savior is eternal, that He is God, that He is God in the flesh. They believe He's important. They believe He is wonderful in their understanding, though they are blaspheming Him. And they will come to a scripture like this to say, Jesus is a created being. But not just any created being. No, no, no. He is the first created being. And he has a special place in God's creation. And though they can't believe that Jesus Christ is the second person in the triunity, they believe he is Michael, the archangel. And that's a whole other subject for another time. But it's amazing. The conclusion that they've come to about Jesus being Michael, the archangel, you want to know how they do that? They take the characteristics and some of the things that have been attributed to Michael 
and they say the same characteristics and attributes have been given to Jesus, so they must be the same person. Isn't that funny? Because when you try to do that with God and Jesus, they go, no. But when you do it with Michael, the archangel, and Jesus, it has to be Michael. How do you make sense of this? How do you make sense of the fact that he is the firstborn of all creation? Because they would argue, well, this is... This means that he's the first created thing. And then through him, all things have been created. So they're not denying that Jesus didn't create everything. They just believe that he was the one who cre was created first. And then through him as a vessel, as a channel, all other things have been created. And I would respond with this. If you're going to honor that narrow interpretation of firstborn, then you would also have to agree that David was the firstborn among his siblings. And you would also have to agree that Israel was the first people group that God created on the earth. And we realize that there were nations before Abraham was even commissioned as the father of this nation. So you either have a massive contradiction in your Bible, or you have to open your mind to believe that it can actually mean something else, and it does. Paul is not saying that Jesus is the first created thing. Do you really think that's the thesis of his argument in this text? Is he really trying to prove to the Colossians, I want to prove to you that Jesus is the first created being, and that through him everything else was created? Absolutely not. All you have to do is read the verse. The whole book of the book of Colossians is that Paul is taking Christ and he's trying to elevate him in the sight of this church. Because all this weird doctrine was creeping in where they're worshiping angels and they're looking to these beings. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. I'm going to elevate Christ above all these other things because where your problems lie is that you're not seeing him as he is. And all you have to do is come down to a few verses. Look at verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be what? Preeminent. Paul's not saying Jesus is the first created being and all other things were created through him. Paul is saying Jesus is above all other created things. He is more precious, more beautiful, more valuable, more worthy, more powerful than any created thing in heaven, on earth, under the earth. So you have to understand here that firstborn does not mean that he was first created, but that he is preeminent above all creation. And that's Paul's argument. Now, we're still in this lane, so might as well make the most of it. Because you're being told this, and then all for a sudden, your friendly neighborhood Jehovah's Witness goes to the book of Revelation, which I would encourage you to turn to, in chapter 3, verse 14, and there's another thing that Jesus himself said about himself. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. The beginning of God's creation. Now when we dealt with the firstborn, we were relieved. And now you come to another word that's probably more difficult to interpret than the firstborn. The beginning of God's creation? That seems very straightforward. Seems like you can't really explain it away. How would you make sense of this? I'm actually curious to know before I give you an answer. Here I am, God forbid, your friendly Jehovah Witness neighborhood guy. You know, Jesus is created, He's actually the beginning of God's creation. How do you explain that, Christian? He's the author of creation. That's a wonderful thing, but you've got to prove it to me. Because I see he's the beginning. And you're not wrong, brother, but I just want to hear references. Oh, but I'm the Jehovah's Witness, and I have a different Bible than you have. And my Bible doesn't say that. The New World Translation doesn't say that. But that's a great reference. That's a wonderful reference. I would say the same thing, but the problem is you go to the Jehovah's Witness Bible and they'll tell you, what are you talking about? You have a perverted version. We have the true version. Genesis 1. 
In the beginning, God. Okay, you're onto something, sister. Okay, you're onto something. You're very, very much so onto something. Very good, brother. Okay, let's, let's just backtrack now. You guys all answered wonderfully. If the beginning of God's creation implies that Jesus is created, we have an issue. And the issue is beyond the fact that Jesus supposedly isn't God. If we believe that, then God isn't God. Let me say that again. If the beginning, if Jesus saying I'm the beginning means that he is not God, then we have a grander problem than Jesus not being God. We have a problem that's God not being God. Revelation 21 verse 6. What does God say about himself? Somebody just said it. Revelation 21, 6, 7, and let's first prove that this is God the Father speaking. Revelation 21, 6, and 7. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God. Full stop. For the one who will conquer... I will be his God, and he will be my son. So first thing to establish, we are hearing from God the Father himself. How do we know? You go to the next chapter, you realize Jesus echoes what the Father says. But before that, we have to deal with this apparent paradox. Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Not even the Jehovah's Witness would ever confess that God at one point had a beginning. That God at one point started. When the atheists ask, who created God? They don't, they don't realize that they're running into a wall because God is in his own separate category. There is the law of the first cause. Something had to start everything. And that's God. God, by definition, is beyond time. So What's this phrase, Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end? And many of you have already alluded to what it means. It does not mean that God at one point had a beginning. It just means that God is sovereign over time. In other words, it means that God is the one who began history. And God has the power and the authority to put an end to history. It simply means that he is the originator of all things and he will ultimately put an end to all things. I was there at the beginning. I will be there at the end. I'm the one who put all things into motion and at the right time, I will put it to a halt. God is saying that he is above. He is the origin. He is the first cause of time, from the beginning to the end, and sovereign over everything in between. Now, you present that truth, and it's very difficult to deny that interpretation unless you have this idea, this notion that God at one point began. But if we can say this about God the Father, why are we so hesitant to say it about God the Son? We shouldn't be. In fact, we must, because that's exactly what is being said when Jesus said, I am the beginning of creation. Again, I'm not the first thing that was created, but I am the first cause of all that is created. I am the source. I am the origin. So that's not a contradiction. That's only solidifying his deity. That's only making him co-equal to God. By giving himself that kind of a title, he is elevating himself to the same place as God himself. And so we don't have a contradiction. We have an affirmation of the deity of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to always make this a practice. Whenever you want to defend something, even if it's a doctrine, you have every right to use the entirety of the scriptures. You can go from Genesis to Revelation. But as best as you can... Stay within the context of the book that is being challenged. So if somebody's pulling a verse out of Revelation, try to defend the case within the book of Revelation and then work from that book outside. 
Because oftentimes things are being said and it is being honored within the same context. Does that make sense? So if Revelation is where people are coming to attack the deity of Christ, if they're going to Revelation 3.14, Jesus is the beginning, okay. So what do you do with God being the beginning? Okay, then you begin to now honor the entire text and you can pull out other scriptures that defend the deity of Jesus Christ. And I want to give you another one. This one is my favorite. I love this one. I use it all the time. I meditate on it. And it is bulletproof, if I can use that term. So Revelation 3.14, he's the beginning of creation, right? So you claim that Jesus Christ is a created being. Oh yeah, what else does it mean? Well, what does it say about the Father? Well, and they get nervous. How do you explain this if he's a created being? Revelation chapter 5, verse 13. Here's what John sees. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. Pause there. When the Bible says every, do you think it means every? It means every. And what realms are we dealing with here? Every creature in heaven. We're talking about supernatural creatures and beings. Not just in heaven, on earth. Beasts, birds, fish, humans. And under the earth. And in the sea. Now every creature, John's seeing this, all creatures of every realm. They're saying something. To him who sits on the throne. Pause, who's that? God the Father. Oh, it's not just God the Father, though. And to the Lamb. Who's the Lamb? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So who's being addressed here? God the Father. God the Son. God the Father. God the Son. And what's happening? Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Give me a word to categorize that worship that's not worship that's veneration that's respect that's honor because jesus michael he came down he did great things so they're showing honor to him go to verse 14 honor really honor and the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and did what they worship they weren't giving honor they were giving what is only due unto god worship they worshiped not just the one who sits on the throne, they worship the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now let's go back to verse 13. Are you guys tracking with me? My mouth isn't moving too fast. I'm not getting too excited. You're not going to leave here confused, right? Some of you are nervously laughing now. This is the time to ask questions because I don't want you to miss this. Here's the argument. Jesus is a created being. He's the first of all creation, and through him, everything else was created. Blasphemy. Okay, let's be patient. If he's a created being, why isn't he on the side of all creation, worshiping God? And every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. Is every mean every? So why isn't Jesus on the side of the rest of creation if he's a created being and not God? Why isn't he joining the elders? Why isn't he joining the seraphim and the cherubim? Why is he not joining the fish and the, the birds and the humans? Why is he not on the side of creation looking to the one on the throne and worshiping God? Because he is God. And he shares the worship and he shares the adoration and he shares the honor and the praise. Here's the last reference. Go to John chapter 5. Never thought we were going to talk about the deity of Christ from 1 Samuel 17, did you? It's okay, it's good. This is why the, the Bible is supernatural. 
In John 5, look at verse 22. People sometimes ask, show me where Jesus said, worship me. People worship Jesus, but people say, where, where do you see Jesus saying, worship me? Here it is. I hope you're writing these things down. Or you have photographic memory, one of the two. John 5, 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. All you have to do is ask a simple question. How do you honor the Father? And there are so many ways to honoring the Father, and one of the ways is what you just read in Revelation 5.13. Let's turn back there. So remember John 5.22, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And in Revelation 5.13, we read something particular. There was a word tucked in there that shows us that Jesus will receive what he said he would receive. The second part. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and what? Honor and glory and might forever and ever. Jesus is the beginning of creation. That doesn't mean he was created. Because what does that mean about the Father? Revelation 21.6. Do you believe that God had a beginning? Do you believe he started at some point? Oh, no, no, no. So what does it mean that he's the beginning and the end? Well, it means that he must be above history and above time. Well, so why can't we say about, about that with Jesus? Well, because it says he was created. Then why is he not on the side of all creation worshiping God? Because he is God. And he is the firstborn of all creation, meaning he is supreme of all creation. And all things were created through him and for him. They didn't just worship the one on the throne. They worshiped the Lamb of God himself. I pray that blessed you. Let's go back to 1 Samuel 15 now. Rather, 17 verse 15, excuse me. And what do we read about David? Well, his introduction still continues to a certain degree. Verse 14, David was the youngest. We dealt with that in light of Christ. The, thir the three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. That's interesting, right? What did we learn from chapter 16 about David? What was he doing before he was anointed? He was what? Tending his father's sheep, right? He was anointed. And then something else happens. Saul starts losing his mind. David's name is recommended. And what does Saul do? He brings David into his courts and he hires him as a musician, number one. And what was the second thing? Armor bearer. That was his new job. In fact, we are told that Saul sent word to Jesse, hey, let me keep David here with me. So you can say that David's full-time job was to sing and to play over Saul and to be his armor bearer, to be his secretary, to carry his equipment whenever he went out to battle or whenever he went out to train. And all of a sudden here in this chapter, we are told that David went back and forth from the kingdom to his father's house to tend his sheep. What does that mean? How do you relate those two things? David went from full-time armor bearer to part-time armor bearer. In other words, David was demoted. He went from promoted to demoted. And so David would be called upon by Saul whenever he was needed. But here's the thing. Where's Saul right now? What's Saul doing? Is he at war? He's at war. Wouldn't you think that you would need your armor bearer when you go to war? That's when you need an armor bearer. Let me carry your armor. David's not on the site. And so for whatever reason, Saul says, just go back. We'll call you whenever we need you. Thanks. You've been great over the past few months. But, you know, just we'll, we'll, we'll let you know when we need you. And David goes back. Can I tell you something more frustrating than not knowing the next step in your life? Can I tell you what's more frustrating than 
being in the same season for such an extended period, whether it's singleness, whether it's not finding a, a job, whether it's not knowing the next step in ministry, can I tell you something more frustrating than that? It's when you think that you've moved on when really you've been set back. When you, when you think that the door is finally open only for it to be slammed in your face. I'm sure David, because he was very intelligent, was making, was making the observation from his time that he was anointed. I've been anointed, and now, look, God has allowed me to come into the courts and to be near the king and to be in close proximity to how all this works. Surely God is taking me from the next step to the next step. I'm so excited. This thing is actually working out. And just when you think that you're moving on, you actually go into reverse. Just when you think that the relationship is going to work, it doesn't work. Just when you think that you were invited into some kind of ministry, things were lining up, things seemed right, you actually planned to move, and it shut. And you wonder, because God is sovereign over this. God's the one who brought him into the courts, and you would think it's only going to go up from here when, in fact, he goes back, and he moves back in with Dad. The question is, why does God do this? Guess what? He doesn't have to tell you all the time. But there are some insights in the Bible, and here's one of those insights. You don't have to turn there. You don't, if you want to reference it, you can. In Proverbs 15, 33, we're told that humility comes before honor. Humility comes before honor. In order for a person to move on, to go up, to be promoted in whatever way God wants to promote you, guess what he'll do? He'll find a way to wound your pride. He'll find a way to train your inner man to know how to be lowly. And he knows just how long you need to be in the oven of humility until he moves you to the next step. He knows just how long he needs to cook you. And at the right time, he'll pull you out. And God does this in many ways. God keeps you hidden. God limits your influence. God lets you in a, in a, in a private setting, in a very small scale, endure certain trials and pains so that you can know how to build up an immunity to certain things. And here's one of the ways God does it. Listen, pay attention. Listen to this. Oftentimes, God will strip you of a certain position, promotion, person, possession, so that he can discover what you truly treasure in your heart. And God tested Job in this way, where he literally stripped him of everything. And you know what he said at the end of the first chapter? The Lord gives, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the next verse says, And all these things Job did not sin with his mouth. God will strip you. God will put delay on you. God will do all these things to see what do you truly value. You know who else it happened to? It happened to David, rather Joseph. It's amazing. I love that part in Joseph's story. He's in prison. He's been given an ability to interpret dreams. Here's two of Pharaoh's employees. They both have a dream. He interprets the one. He says, you're a dead man in just a few days. And the next one, he says, you, you're going to be promoted. You're going to get your job back. And this is what Joseph does. He goes, listen, when you get out of here, please let him know that I'm in here for no reason. Please get me out of this place because I'm an innocent man. And he gets assurance. The guy gets out of jail, and then you read that Joseph was in there for two more years. The guy forgot. The guy forgot. I mean, this man, somebody to interpret your dream and to give you hope, and you forget the guy? Wouldn't that be on the top priority of your to-do list? The man forgets. And Joseph, can you imagine the angst? Can you imagine the anxiety? Okay, this guy, this guy said he would do it. Three days go by. A week goes by. A month goes by. Surely, maybe he's busy. There's his administrative stuff. Maybe he has to warm up to Pharaoh again. At any time, I'm going to get the, the call. I'm out of here. I'm a free man. Two years passes by. I've seen it in many Christians' lives, even in this church. 
They've been praying about something. They've been seeking God for something. We pray together for something. And it seems like there's a flicker of hope. There seems like an open door only to be shut again. An extended period of time goes by and all they're, all they're enduring is a testing. Do you still trust me? Do you still believe me? Am I still worthy of your worship? Or are you going to cross your arm and say, you know, God, you're playing around with me. I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm in it for this. What are you going to do? Here's David anointed to be king. Here's David who had been selected by the prophet Samuel and he seems like he's moving forward and all for a sudden Saul says, go back, we'll call you. And he's like, Re- what? All right. We see no complaint. We would complain. We see no complaint. He goes back. He goes back home. And it's amazing because God is going to do something with this man in a moment. And we read it here in verse 16. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. So David, he's managing his dad's sheep. He gets a call. David comes up to dad. Old, frail man. He loves his sons. He's concerned about his sons. David, I need you to do me a favor. I need you to go see your brothers. And like a good dad, here's all this food, and mom probably made all these snacks and these cheeses and all these things, and just, I need you to go. Do you realize that this is providence at work? I'll tell you why. Which sons went to war? How many of them at least? Three. How many brothers were there? Why didn't he ask the other brothers? There was others in between the three and David. God's providence worked in this moment for David to be selected. Now that's from God's point of view. Let's look in a human point of view. Surely there was something about David that allowed Jesse to be in a place of comfort and ease to give him this kind of assignment. He trusted David enough. He knew his work ethic. He knew his integrity. He knew that he was willing to obey to the T. And so he trusted him with a task to put the stuff on pause and to go and deliver these things to his brothers. What's the point of this? You guys have heard a word, you guys have heard a word that I've said over and over in these past few weeks. It starts with the letter P. What is it again? Providence. Providence. Providence, God's working in our world where he accomplishes his will in your life and all of history through natural means and natural actors. God is not using supernatural things to accomplish things. Providence, you showed up at the right time, you met this person at that time, it didn't make sense, it seemed like a circumstance, but that's providence. Providence does not work with passivity. Just because we believe that God is provident doesn't mean we sit on our hands or we stain our fingers by eating Cheetos all week and playing Xbox 16 hours a day. Providence doesn't work with passivity. Oh, God is providential. He'll lead me when he'll lead me and I'll just wait here. If he really wants to call me, he'll call me. Oh, yeah? Yeah, he'll call you when you call you, but what are you doing now between then and the call? Providence doesn't work with passivity. Providence partners with faithful activity providence doesn't work with passivity you want to be passive you want to be lazy you won't see God's providence in your life you'll only experience a wasted dried up shriveled up life providence partners with a person that is obeying God to the knowledge that they can obey him in the season that they're in that's how providence works providence selected David out of all the brothers to go and to deliver these things to the other brothers. But in the human perspective, David was doing his work well. David won the trust of his father. David had a good work ethic. And then providence was at work. Now David is going to go and he's going to encounter the man that's going to turn around his life forever and ever. What would, what would have happened? Now look at it this way too. David was called to do this, to be a delivery boy, okay? 
What just happened not too long ago with David in just one chapter before this? He was anointed to be king. Like he was anointed among his brethren. So everyone saw the prophet Samuel pour oil on David and, and he was selected among them all to be this mighty leader in the nation. What if David was like, Father, do you know who I am? I, I'm next to be king. Imagine David built up this idea because he was selected for such a great task that others should be serving him and not him serving others. I have a special call on my life. I have this great future ahead. I'm going to be ruling over all of you. Let's practice now. You're going to ask me to be a delivery boy? Imagine he convinced his dad to select one of the other brothers. You know what would happen? He would have missed his appointment with Goliath. He would have missed his appointment with Goliath. If God has truly called somebody to do great things, they will be just as eager to do small things. And that is an attitude that every single one of us needs to adopt. Because anything else but simple humility can cost us very much. I'll give you an example. Keith Daniel has preached here a couple years in a row. Some of you are very familiar. He's passed on into glory. He is a gifted man, not just in the scriptures, but in illustrations. And he gave this illustration. He comes to the States three times out of the year to do a preaching circuit across the nation. And I remember hearing him share this story where one time he was invited to some obscure small church for a conference over the weekend. And as a preacher, you want to preach to as many people as possible because you want as many souls to be converted. You want as many souls to be revived. When he readied himself for this sermon, he entered into the sanctuary very close because if you've noticed when he comes, he, he comes very close to the beginning of the message. He wants to go straight from the prayer closet to the pulpit. He walks into the sanctuary and imagine a total of five people at a conference. And he said to himself, five people? And he began to feel his flesh erupt. And so he walked outside and he started to pour out his heart to God. Lord, you know, I, can, I know what that's like from a preacher perspective. You, you kind of just want, let's just make it casual. Let's make it, let's tone it down. Let's just, and he began to pour out his heart to God. Being very honest, you can be honest with God. God already sees what you're feeling anyway. And God spoke to him, made an impression on his heart. He says, I want you to go in there and I want you to preach as though there were 5,000. I want you to preach with all of your heart, with all of your might, with all of your strength, as though there was a, a mass volume of people in front of you. He obeyed God. He came back in there and he preached to five people. And this is what happened. What he didn't know, he realized afterwards, that one of those people that was sitting in that small group of people, had connections to hundreds of churches. And because he heard this man preach with such unction and power and conviction, it was through that meeting that so many other doors opened for Keith Daniel to preach across the nation. What happened? What would have happened if he had done it half-heartedly? If he went up there loosely and was kidding around and made light of it? Perhaps that one man would have got up and said, just another old-fashioned preacher. Don't despise. Don't despise any small beginnings, any small task. Don't fight people about it. Don't argue against it. If God has placed you here, you be faithful and you give all of your might, all of your strength, all of your passion. You just never know where it's going to lead you. In fact, that's what we learn about David next. Look at verse 19. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. Now look how David responds to his father's command and instructions. Now I'm going to read these verses. I want you to see, I'm going to ask you two things that, that pop up. So pay close attention as I read. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. 
And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. Give me at least two observations concerning David's attitude. Concerning his attitude with how he responded to his father's instructions. He rose early. Wonderful. Verse 20, he rose early. Great observation. Look at verse 22 to match that. David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and did what? He ran. He didn't drag his feet. Oh, you didn't do this for dad. And, oh, I could have been doing this instead. I'm the king. I'm supposed to be king. He ran. He rose early. Good. Give me a second observation. That's the first one. Very good. He left the sheep with the keeper. And now look at verse 22. He didn't just do that. And David left the things into the ranks and he gave it to the keeper. The baggage, all the stuff that he came with, with another keeper. So the first point deals with his promptness, his zeal, his passion, his eagerness to obey the instructions that have been given to him. He didn't complain. He didn't give half of his heart. If his father said it, he would do it with all of his strength. And if David did this with his earthly father, how much more a heavenly father? Whether the command is great or small, we should do it with all that is within us. You know, you have some people that say to themselves and maybe even to others, you know, once I get to that position, if I get to worship lead or if I get to preach or share or if I get to, then I'll really be passionate. Then I'll really be diligent. Then I'll really be devoted. Then I'll really study my Bible. Then I'll really get a prayer life. And this is what I've learned. If people are not as diligent and disciplined in small things, when the big thing comes and the excitement wears off, they'll do what they did with the small things to the big things. When the excitement is there, oh, they're passionate. Just like when you start anything new, that novelty, it's fresh, it's new, I can make an impact. And then when reality hits, what's, what's going to be left? When, when all the adrenaline comes down, it's, it's the core of who you are, your convictions, your frame of mind, your work ethic. And so leaders know how to observe when people do small things to see how well they do it. And more importantly, God sees it. But he wasn't just passionate. He was responsible. This isn't a glamorous point. I'm sure all of us would like to know how more Jesus is deity and he is God. But let me tell you, this is so important. I wonder why the Holy Spirit would place such details in the word of God. Why do I need to know that he rose early and that he ran? Why can you say, and David arrived to the field? Why do you need to tell me twice that he left a keeper with the sheep and when he got there, he left another keeper with his baggage? Why? Because the Bible is intensely practical. David was responsible. You can see the man's thinking and his leadership IQ that's going to prepare him to be the nation's king. But it's more than just that. It's an attitude thing. It's an outlook thing. It's a conviction thing. Whatever he's been given, he wanted to give himself to it. Unfortunately, what you have in people when they want to serve, even in the context of ministry, this might wound, this might sting, but if the shoe fits, wear it. People join ministries not to serve, but to serve themselves. A lot. Whether it's their ego, their pride, and even sometimes their entertainment. People sign up for things just because they have nothing else to do. And it shows. It shows in their commitment level. It shows in how much they get involved and, and, and what they put into it. David was not such a person. David was faithful with whatever has been given to him. David was concerned about the health, the reputation, the effectiveness and the development of the responsibility that he's been given. And unfortunately, people are not like that with their ministries. You can see it. They, whenever they can't come, they don't call. They don't say, hey, I'm not going to be in town. Can you have somebody replace me? They could care less. Just like David, ah, whatever. They'll figure it out. That's not somebody who is dedicated to their ministry. That's not somebody who's devoted to what they've been given to. They don't pray over their ministry. 
They don't, they don't honor the commitments that are given within that context. And here's why it's a problem. The church is built by ministries, and those ministries are managed by individuals. And if those individuals do not have a passion and a concern for the function or the reputation of that ministry, you spread that, that's the common attitude, we're going to have a weak church and a very poor testimony to believers in a watching world. You know what's amazing? God said something to Israel at one point. It was a fascinating thing that he said. He spoke to Israel in the book of Malachi chapter 1. And he said this. He said, and paraphrasing really, you offer these blind animals and these weakened beasts on my altar? Because remember, there was a protocol of what you gave on the altar concerning the health of the animals and the beasts. And then he says in verse 8, he says, try giving that to your governor. Try giving that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? You know what he's saying? Translation, the way you do ministry in my house, the way you serve me in my house, try doing that to your boss at work and see what he'll do with you. See what he'll do with you. Let's be honest, from pastors all the way down to the volunteer, in many places, if we did what we did in the house of God, as we did in our workplace, we'd all be fired. We'd be homeless. We wouldn't have an income. And God says, try doing that with your leaders outside of the spiritual realm and see what they will do to you. Now let me say something. It's going to sting. Do you know why so many more Christians are more diligent and disciplined and devoted to their work and their jobs more than their house of God? I'll tell you why. Their God is money. That's why. And you can't convince me otherwise. Their master is mammon. They worship the dollar. When it comes to God's house, I'm doing God a favor. I'm not getting paid for this. I don't have a title for this. I'm not going to be invited to conferences for this. I'm doing God a favor. You love money more than you love God. Plain and simple. And here's proof of that in this text. Look what happens next, and we'll close it here. Verse 23. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. That's providence right there. It's even like more precise. This is surgical providence. David doesn't just show up on the field when Goliath is there. David shows up on the field right when Goliath is about to threaten, as he did over the weeks, once in the morning and once at night. So David pulls up, he runs to his brothers, and he hears in the distance, Goliath defying the armies of Israel, Goliath defying God, and David's like, what? Did I, did I just hear what I just heard? Verse 24, and all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, look at this. This is so interesting. Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, one, and will give him his daughter, two, and make his father's house free in Israel, meaning no taxes. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. Notice what happens. David shows up. These men are trembling. And they say, do you realize what King Saul issued? If anybody kills him, they're going to get riches. They're going to have his daughter. And, and there's going to be no taxes. There's going to be special privileges for him in light of the law. And David's like, say that again. And he gets the answer back. But notice what David answers with. He goes, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? More than anything else, David was more concerned about one thing, and that was God's name being dishonored. That was the only thing he was concerned about. And because of that, he was willing to fight against Goliath. One simple thing, because God's name was being dishonored. You know what that tells me about the rest of the armies of Israel? 
because they didn't have a concern of God's honor, they were unwilling to fight Goliath. And Saul knew this. So you know what Saul had to do? What many pastors have to do to get people into their church and serve. You want to serve? Uh, okay, we'll give you, we'll, here's some entertainment, and uh, here's some food, because we know that call for prayer meeting, yeah, call for potluck, woo, you're going to get people. So here's some food, here's some entertainment, we'll give you a concert, and it's not really worship, it's more entertainment. And, and what are we doing? We're doing what Saul did. Because people are not concerned about God's glory, his name, his word, his will, we have to use other trinkets to try to bring people in. And here's the thing, if you have to reel people in that way, you're going to have to come up with new things to keep them. But create a culture that's based on the word of God, from the leadership down, that has a concern for the glory of God, and his name, and his word, and his will. Let the people who want the riches, who want the girl, who want the easy life, go to other places, and let the ones who want God's will to be done and name glorified come in. Here's what happens. If you even have one person that's concerned about the glory of God like David, you will have that person doing great things for God. Did you guys hear how he's talking about God? And all of you guys are shaking in your boots. Let me take care of him. And that's why often in history, it's only been a handful, sometimes even one individual, who's so consumed that they live beyond their little life and their comforts and their needs, and are concerned with the transcendent person that saved their soul, and a world that's blaspheming them and mocking them, and they're saying, you know what, I'm, as long as I have breath, I'm going to do something about this. And they step in and do great things for God because they have a great concern for His glory. And that's what propels David. That's what propels David. May it never be said of this ministry that we have to use anything other than God's glory to draw people in. And the day that that happens, let this church no longer be a church. Because that's not a church. We've talked much about Jesus. Here's one more. Did you notice the shadow? Let me say it and it'll come, hopefully. David was sent by the Father. To a people who could not defeat an enemy that was too strong and mighty for them to overcome. David was sent by the Father to overcome an enemy that no other person can overcome but him. At the perfect time. At the end of 40 days, when his father told him to go, he showed up at the time when the threat went out at the appointed time, at the right time. Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5, and our Bible study is finished. But when the fullness of time had come, in other words, at the perfect time, at the right time, at the appointed time, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. There's Jesus for you. Not just in the fact that he's the firstborn, like David would be. Oh, no. Even when Jesse said, I need you to go, David willingly and in humility says, I will go. And he goes to defeat the enemy that no man can overcome, death and sin. And triumphantly, David, as we're going to find out next week, foreshadows what Jesus would do on that cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this precious word. We thank you because our souls feel fed. We feel full 
And yet we've only scratched the surface. Your thoughts are deep, so deep. This word is supernatural, for it is your voice that speaks. Lord, in this place tonight, so much has been said. And we trust that your Holy Spirit has taken whatever was necessary to drive it into our hearts. Lord, thank you for showing us Jesus tonight. Thank you for showing us practical ways of serving you. Lord, in this moment, if there's any application that we ask for, Lord, to be real in our lives, help us be those concerned for your honor, concerned about your name, that even if the rest of Christendom wants to be afraid and wants to be lazy, Lord, make me so in love with you that I'm willing to obey you when no other man will. Lord, that is difficult. It is not easy. But Lord, we have no other joy in this life. There's no other reason to live on this filthy, twisted, corrupt world, but to live for the name that will endure forever. You are the beginning and the end. You are the Alpha and the Omega. You are the firstborn of all creation. You are the beginning of God's creation. We give you all glory. And Lord, we honor you. We look to the throne and to the Lamb, and we give you maximum praise tonight. Let these things that we've learned melt into our being and help us live what we just heard preached. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.